The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In the Rose Garden on Monday, President Trump threatened to send military forces into cities and states that failed to quell violence spiraling from protests over the death of George Floyd while in police custody. Mayors and governors must establish an overwhelming law enforcement presence until the violence has been quelled. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. Trump would likely use the 1807 Insurrection Act, but there would be serious questions about the legality of such an order. Trump's own Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, broke with the president on Wednesday and said he opposed sending troops in. The option to use active duty forces in a law enforcement role should only be used as a matter of last resort and only in the most urgent and dire of situations. We are not in one of those situations now. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. Joining me is Harold Krant, professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. Can he do that? Can he use the military to go into states? Uh, yes and no. I mean, from the time of our founding, Congress has decided there may be some emergency in which the president would have to deploy federal troops to protect against some kind of insurrection or some kind of violence at the state level. There are a couple of different categories in which Congress has envisioned the president involving the troops in such protection or defense of, of the country. The first is when a governor asks for the president's help. And the governors have done that on a number of occasions, most notably recently after the riots, after the beatings of Rodney King in Los Angeles in 1992. And Governor Wilson then said, I need help. And President Bush sent in troops to help calm the streets of Los Angeles after the continued fighting. So that's the most recent occasion. There have been other times in our country as well in that genre when governors themselves have lost control. The second context, which we've also seen, is when there's a need to protect federal law. That sometimes states will not protect federal law, and so there the Insurrection Act gives the president the ability to send in troops. 
most famously was used in our country in Arkansas to enforce the civil rights laws to make sure that desegregation was a reality because the states were refusing to enforce federal law and to allow integration to take place. So those are the two most common contexts. The third category, and that's the category that President Trump would need to fit this use of troops into, was when there is a sort of a failure of civil process and when a state can no longer protect its citizens because there is so much violence going on and the normal administrative machinery is not available to protect its citizens. That's never been used and it's unlikely to be used in this case because states themselves have said there is no failure of process. There may be a riot, but a riot's not an insurrection. Courts are still open. Police stations are still open. And so that would be the category that Trump would have to fit this introduction of federal troops into. And it's unprecedented, but it doesn't seem to fit the exception. And the way to look at it is, is this really an insurrection that the states can no longer function? Or is this a riot? And if it's a riot, it doesn't seem to fit in within the structure of the statute allowing for the introduction of U.S. troops. What about the part of that statute that allows military to put down domestic violence? Could this be considered domestic violence? That's not really in the Insurrection Act itself, with the 1807 statute that President Trump invoked. There is another sort of idea of emergency use. There's an inherent, some kind of inherent authority of the president in an emergency to protect the country, right? And this is when most famously President Lincoln cited this when he was trying to use the forces of the North to prevent a successful rebellion in the South and did not await for any kind of congressional action, but just said, I have to have a reservoir of emergency authority to protect the nation. Sure, President Trump can invoke his inherent authority. He didn't so far. But if he does, it just doesn't seem to rise to that kind of level of a catastrophe. Now, most people think if we have a terrorist attack, the president should invoke emergency powers and not really worry about the niceties of making a proclamation under the Insurrection Act or anything of that sort, but just introduce troops if we need to, to protect against terrorists. And some people think he talked about the Antifa as a terrorist group, as an alternative way to pave the ground for introduction of U.S. troops on the theory that we were really facing a terrorist attack by the Antifa as opposed to domestic disturbances. Explain what Antifa is and what happened recently. So Antifa is a loosely organized uh, left-wing anarchist uh, group that believes in in violence and destabilizing the status quo. Um, And the president has declared that that group is a domestic terrorist organization bent on using violence to overthrow the U.S. government. Um, and there is not much evidence of the Antifa's involvement in the recent protests around the country um, about the George Floyd, Floyd killing. I mean, there may be some elements from Antifa that have mixed in, and not just Antifa, but there are other kinds of agitators who were, have, and, and looters as well who have used the means or used the context of a peaceful protest as a means to further their own ends. Well be that destabilization or booting, uh, but there's no evidence that I've seen so far that Antifa was 
behind the peaceful protests, behind the violence to any kind of great extent. But President Trump has labeled them as a terrorist organization, which may be, again, one plank down the road of saying that he is introducing troops to protect against this terrorist um, threat. Now, that's not directly, again, uh, provided for in the Insurrection Act, but I think most people would believe that the president has the authority to introduce troops if we are in the case of invasion, obviously, or in case of an active um, uh, domestic terrorism uh, challenge. Some legal experts believe that the broad language of the Insurrection Act means that Trump might have a case. Noah Feldman, who's a Bloomberg opinion columnist, Harvard Law professor, says that the rioting and looting is obstructing execution of federal law to the extent that local police and the National Guard can successfully stop violence on the streets. So if it comes to that point, does Trump have a better case? Most of the, what we've seen on the streets, there has been a threat to state law issues, to, to property law, to, to traffic laws, and, and so forth. Transportation. There has not been a direct threat to federal law itself. The question is, what is the federal interest? Certainly, there's a right to protect federal buildings, such as the courthouse or a federal bank. But the federal legal interests involved in the rioting so far have been very uh, marginal. So I think it would be a stretch to to justify any kind of Trump intervention on the base of the need to protect federal law. The state cops are still there. National Guard can be there. And so the machinery of justice is still working. And there's very little at stake, at risk from a federal law perspective. New York Attorney General Letitia James tweeted, We will guard the right to peaceful protest and will not hesitate to go to court to protect our constitutional rights during this time and well into the future. But by the time you get into court, isn't it too late? You know, if he decides to send troops in, how long will it take to get a court to rule on that? This is one of those difficult political constitutional questions that is not meant for speedy resolution in the courts. I mean, the court might try to say that there's an emergency motion and hear it and decide within a day. But even within a day, the troops would already be on the ground and the whole sort of reality would be uh, changed. Now, I do think that there might be litigation after the fact, because if someone was arrested or somebody was, in fact, um, uh, beat up by a member of the U.S. Army, then they would be able to sue after the fact on the ground that the whole introduction of U.S. troops was illegal and therefore their arrest um, or search and seizure should be thrown out. But in terms of immediately trying to get a court order to stop the introduction of U.S. troops, I think that's a uh, high hurdle to overcome and I wouldn't expect the court to be able to effectively stop the introduction of federal troops until for several days afterwards, by which time it might be too late. Uh, On the other hand, if you take a step back and look at it, it, this is really a political issue. The governors, such as the governors of Illinois, New York, and Minnesota, have stood up and said, we don't want any federal troops here. And I think there's leaders in the federal um, military who have also said, we don't think we should introduce troops in this way. So already there, there is a political movement against the threat by President Trump. And I think that's probably going to be the most important um, uh, sort of weight against the president as opposed to any potential court challenge. 
this seems to be a, a unique situation in our country. Can you remember another time when there were protests like this across the country, you know, where a president would be even be thinking about military action? Well, most recently, there have been situations because of a natural disaster, whether it was in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina or a hurricane in the, in the Virgin Islands. Uh, those uh, disasters left sort of devastation in their, in their wake, and it really was, wasn't that far from what happened in Puerto Rico just a couple of years ago. And there, there has been a need to have have quick action by federal authorities to try to restore order. But we haven't seen it in a kind of political context. And, and remember that most, almost everybody would agree, I think, so far, that 96% of all of the protests has been peaceful, they've been constructive, and so to send the military in because of even what some people might say is a few bad apples or these provocateurs seem to be an overreach, and there's been no evidence that the states on their own can't take care of it, maybe not as efficiently as we've all would like, but it looks like that issues are subsiding, the violence is subsiding, and that the protests that are continuing are, again, are well within the First Amendment rights and, in fact, very productive for the country. I also want to talk a little bit about that incident, uh, the clearing of the peaceful protesters from around the White House. You had General Mark Milley wearing combat fatigues on the streets of the Capitol, and military units were used against the protesters. Is that allowed on the streets of our country? So legally, the president's in a better position because it's D.C., D.C. is not a state. Uh, D.C. Uh, does have militia, but it's also connected with a more a closely controlled to the federal government and to uh, the U.S. National Guard and because of that to the U.S. Army as well. So in that sense, the, the president does have more control to order the military to protect him or people or property in D.C. than they would in New York, Illinois, Minnesota, or elsewhere. Uh, but, but the question is why? I mean, why would he have to send those kind of messages to people who are peacefully protesting um, what happened in Minnesota? It, it sort of defies any kind of imagination. So it's, in my mind, a totally excessive show of force. But again, he, there's more legal backing to what he did in D.C. than there uh, would be in a, in a state. More National Guard troops have been deployed inside the U.S. at this time than at any previous time in our history. The White House has asked some governors to send National Guard troops to D.C. And governors in Virginia, New York, Pennsylvania, and Delaware have declined to do so. Who has the power over those troops? Is it the governors? The governors have the power to say, no, we're not going to send you any troops Right. The first level, the governors do have the authority to decide how their own National Guard's troops should be deployed. But the very name National Guard suggests that uh, people in the National Guard wear two hats. Their first loyalty is to the states. But if the federal government goes through the right procedures to federalize the National Guard, then the um, federal, federal military would be at the head of the National Guard. Now, the government has not done this yet. I, I hope it doesn't. It doesn't seem to have the need to do that. Uh, but this, again, is a unique sort of window into the dual nature and dual loyalties of the National Guards in our country 
first to the state, whether it's Virginia or Illinois, um, and then, of course, to the national government itself. I believe it was President Eisenhower who took over the state's National Guard in 1957 from the governor, without the governor's consent. Yeah, and President Trump might take that step, and, and we think that that's probably within his legal authority to do so. Um, that does come with more responsibilities and obligations, and he has not shown a willingness to take that step. And I don't think he needs to, and I think, don't think he needs to because um, he's sitting with the U.S. Army at his back, and if he wants to take a dramatic move, he'll probably do so through introduction of the armed forces, as he's threatened to do already, as opposed to taking the step of na- nationalizing the uh, state's National Guards. But who knows? We'll have to stay tuned to, to watch unfolding developments. So then, just to clarify, it's a different legal issue, his taking over a National Guard in a state as opposed to sending the military in? The answer is yes, but the answer is also that I don't know the procedures that he has to follow to do that. Are there any procedures he has to follow if he decided to invoke the Insurrection Act? There is one procedure that he must follow, and he must make a proclamation that he will be introducing troops and why he will be introducing troops. Um, That's the only real procedural obstacle for invoking the Insurrection Act. So it's a relatively minimal procedural hurdle that he must satisfy. Thanks, Hal. That's Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with a proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. 
With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Next Friday, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals will hear oral arguments to determine whether Judge Emmett Sullivan has the power to review the Justice Department's plan to drop its charges against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn after his two guilty pleas. Joining me is Brad Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Brad, can you remember the last time an appellate court asked a federal judge to explain his actions? No, I mean, this. I'm sure there are instances in the past in which that has occurred. Probably not the first time it's ever happened. But this is altogether a rather unusual and somewhat unprecedented situation because this is where a situation where the defendant has already pleaded guilty in more than one hearing and in writing. The guilty plea was already accepted. They were ready for sentencing. The Justice Department had defended itself multiple times against allegations of misconduct against allegations that the that the false statements were not material. And then all of a sudden, at the last minute, the government changes its mind without rescinding its previous sworn assertions, uh, defending its position and says, we're going to dismiss the charges. We've reconsidered our legal analysis. And so it put Judge Sullivan in a rather difficult situation, which is why we are in the current predicament in which we find ourselves that now has the D.C. Circuit hearing this uh, next week. Judge Sullivan responded through his attorney. What was his response to why he stepped in here? So the the ultimate uh, point that Judge Sullivan's attorney was arguing and outlining is that this is way too early and premature for the circuit or for any kind of you know relief to be provided because Judge Sullivan hasn't actually done anything yet. So under Criminal Procedure 48, which is the one the government move to dismiss the charges, it requires leave of the court. It requires the court's permission at this point to have the charges dismissed. And what Judge Sullivan is saying is, I'm not a rubber stamp. I get the, I have the discretion to inquire before I grant leave. I have a unusual situation. It's virtually unheard of for the government to withdraw the charges in this context after the defendant has already pled guilty multiple times in my courtroom and to me, and after the government has fought back allegations of Brady violations and you know, things along those lines and passed motions, and to now suddenly with this politicized environment to move to withdraw the charges. And the Judge Sullivan's comment was, I have the authority in that circumstance to appoint an amicus, to appoint someone like Judge Gleason to argue against the dismissal, if only to ensure the adversarial process before I make a choice. And my choice might still be to grant leave and dismiss the charges. But I have that discretion to review that situation first, and that the circuit shouldn't be intervening. It should be allowing him to conduct that discretionary inquiry. He said that the Department of Justice repeatedly affirmed for years that the evidence that Flynn lied to the FBI was ironclad and crucial to the FBI Russia investigation. How does that compare with what the Department of Justice has said? Yes. So now the Justice Department's changed view on this, never rescinded any of their past defenses. All they have essentially said here is that even if he did lie, we have now concluded 
that it was not a, a false statement uh, material to an ongoing investigation because the investigation shouldn't have been ongoing in the first place, which is some very fancy, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking by the Justice Department lawyer who signed that brief saying they shouldn't have been talking to Flynn anyway. That didn't rescind any of the past affidavits they submitted. It didn't rescind any of the past motions and oppositions they had filed. And what particularly concerned Judge Sullivan was it didn't have any of the original prosecutors on the brief. It was a brand new, temporarily appointed individual put in there by the attorney general who signed that brief alone. And then he left as well. And so that was why Judge Sullivan wanted to inquire further to see what exactly was going on there. Does anyone take into an account that Flynn pleaded to these particular charges, but there were other charges that were being considered against him? Yeah, that has been mentioned. I mean, there certainly there was a uh, Foreign Agent Registration Act issue that came up in the plea deal that was mentioned in the statement of offense that Michael Flynn had been doing work in support of Turkey and he had never registered. Uh, with the Justice Department as a foreign registered agent, and that he had lied about the details. That was part of what came up with the statement of offense. And there was always this issue of were there other charges that Mueller's team had been considering against Flynn prior to him pleading guilty. There was a question about whether or not he had properly outlined his work in support of Turkey and his interactions with various foreign government officials on his security clearance paperwork. And failure to properly document that is a felony can be a felony under, again, 18 U.S.C. 1001. So there were certainly other issues that could have been raised if Mueller had wanted to throw the entire kitchen sink at him, but they didn't. They struck a plea deal to get his cooperation. And those were things that I'm sure, to some extent, Judge Sullivan would want to inquire into as part of his assessment of the Rule 48 motion. Flynn's lawyers filed this writ of mandamus. Did the circuit court have to call a hearing and ask for briefs and everything, or could they have just rejected that out of hand? They could have rejected it out of hand, but I don't think anybody was expecting them to do so, given the sensitivity of the topic and given the constitutional concerns. I mean, there's certainly an issue about Brady violations in here that have been alleged. It would have made no sense for the circuit to have just summarily denied the motion. It was certainly proper for them at that point to get briefs, to let Judge Sullivan submit a brief, to let the Justice Department submit a brief, to let Amici submit briefs, and to call a hearing and to hear this out and to let this be truly argued before this panel. How it will play out, I think is anybody's guess. I think a lot of people are trying to get ahead of themselves on whether or not politics will play a role in who decides how to vote on this three-person panel with respect to whether grant uh, the writ of mandamus, I do not believe they will ultimately grant. This is a more conservative panel than you might expect to find at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, considering its its makeup, <clears throat> and with one President Trump appointee. So might that play into how the judges view this? And, that, and that's kind of going towards what I was just saying before. I think a lot of people are assuming that, you know, because of the more conservative bent that some of these judges are more closely aligned to the president, that they will automatically just vote, you know, in lockstep with the president. While that's certainly a potential, you know, reality, I think some people are underestimating the extent to which, you know, one or two of these judges might be a little off put by the idea of the circuit granting this kind of relief because of the door it could open in the future. I think it would go against some of the conservative principles for them to uh, allow 
for the Justice Department and a criminal defendant who had already pled guilty to, you know, essentially join forces against the judge. So I think there's a degree there to which these judges are going to play it a little close to their vest on just how much they're going to let politics, you know, how much some of their overriding conservative, you know, legal principles might play a role in how they try to weasel their way out of this and basically say, no, this has got to go back to the judge until he actually makes the decision first. When the federal government filed its last brief, it took a step even further than the Flynn attorneys had done in asking the court to stop Judge Sullivan or any other judge from proceeding with contempt proceedings, which is different from accepting the plea or not. Correct. And so, and that was in the context that technically, under federal law, Federal judges have inherent authority to hold an individual that came before them in criminal contempt or lying or providing false statements to the judge. And that was something that obviously Judge Sullivan was going to inquire into with his proceedings at the district court level because Mr. Flynn had come before first Judge Contreras and said, yes, I am pleading guilty. I lied. And then had done before Judge Sullivan and said, yes, I am guilty. I lied. Had done that in a sworn statement. And so I'm sure Judge Sullivan was going to be asking him, I asked you over and over and over, are you sure? Are you sure? And you said you were. And now you're pulling it back. So are you lying then or are you lying now? And technically, the Judge Sullivan has the authority in that circumstance. I don't think he would employ it, but he has the authority to criminally punish Flynn himself. And how does the Justice Department answer that? Because it seems that that's just a separate issue from the Flynn plea, that if someone is perceived to have lied to a court, the court has the right to protect its integrity. Yeah, so the Justice Department's view in this very pretzel-like contorted argument they had to make basically say it would be inappropriate for Judge Sullivan to go down that path in this situation where the Justice Department is now apparently siding with Flynn's lawyers saying that there were improprieties in how the FBI had conducted the inquiries and the context of it. And so therefore, to whatever extent Flynn may have provided the statements that he's now recanted, it would be inappropriate for the judge to try to use that inherent authority. And to be clear, that inherent authority is rarely, if ever, used. It is not something judges commonly have to worry about because usually law enforcement takes care of it. And DOJ certainly doesn't want to start ceding any kind of authority to the judges in that regard. When the Justice Department decided to drop the charges against Flynn, it came as a shock to most people. And Attorney General Barr, in a TV interview, explained that it was justice for all and that he wanted to make sure that everyone was treated the same. But how unusual is it after all the litigation that's gone on? And what is behind this withdrawal of the charges against Flynn? Is it part of an attempt to erase the Russia probe? Well, that certainly is what it appears to be, at least, you know, a bit-by-bit effort first in the Riker Stone sentencing where the president and GOJ intervened on the sentencing recommendation. And then now with Flynn, we're trying to get the charges pulled back entirely. You see a slow, you know, steady degradation of the entirety of the Mueller report. You've got, you know, Attorney General Barr has got all these different U.S. attorneys running separate probes, trying to peel apart and pull apart any semblance trust in what Mueller had done and try to suggest the whole thing was a fraud. So to an extent, Judge Sullivan, I think, at least to the degree that there's something before him, is trying to reassure public confidence in how this is being handled. He obviously is not 
in a position to, nor should he be using his, his role to try to address the entirety of the Mueller issue. But he is trying to ensure that what was done before him, and he is a constitutional officer, he was appointed by a president and confirmed by the Senate at the time he was put on the bench, has that role to ensure that the proceedings before him were done in candor. And when he sees what's going on here with how DOJ is now you know, playing footsie with the Flynn team, there is a certain degree of discretion that he has that he has chosen to employ to inquire further to make sure he personally is comfortable with what's going on before he signs off on dismissing the charges. Judge Sullivan was concerned that the career prosecutors handling the case declined to sign the motion to dismiss, but the government's brief was signed by one of the longtime prosecutors on the case, as well as two other career prosecutors. So does that mitigate against that one argument by Judge Sullivan? It might. And I think that's something that he was certainly going to, you know, inquire into. And this is part of the whole argument that ultimately he's making to the circuit is this is all premature to try to stop what he's doing. He hasn't even made a choice yet. He might still grant the dismissal and and Flynn will go free. But all he's trying to do at the moment is flesh out the record a little bit more clearly, given the unusual nature of what's going on before him, including this really weird set of memos coming out of DOJ, you know, first before they withdrew everything and now after they tried to withdraw charges and the rotating chairs of who's on the brief. And that's within his discretion to inquire into. I personally think he was still going to grant the motion to dismiss in the end. But now I just don't know. Thanks, Brad. That's Brad Moss of Mark Zaid. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.